Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 95, The Berlin Crisis and Khrushchev Visits America, Part 1. Last episode, we covered what can be called Khrushchev's coming out party, where he begins to make his mark on the foreign stage. His grab for power is now complete after the removal of his last potential threat, Marshal Georgi Zhukov and he is now the deciding factor in all policy matters within the USSR. I also misspoke last week when I said we'd cover the Cuban Missile Crisis this podcast. That should come next week. But before we move on, I'd like to make an appeal to my loyal listeners. As we're nearing episode number 100 of this podcast, which is way beyond what I ever dreamed of, I'd like to make it kind of special. I'd like to make it your podcast. So what I'll ask you to do is to send me questions, suggestions, things that you'd like to have heard about in Russian history that we haven't covered. Now, if you're going to ask me to cover the Crimean War, that's a little bit more than I'm going to do for episode 100. Uh, I'm going to carry that on to when we're done with Putin. I'll cover things like the Crimean War, like the Russian Civil War in more detail. But what I'm looking for is some simple questions about some people or events in Russian history that you want me to answer that you've kind of been puzzled about. You can do that by going to russianrulers.podhoster.com and leave a comment or question suggestion there. Or you can go to our Facebook fan page at Russian Rulers History Podcast. So I'd really like to hear as many of those type of questions and maybe you'll hear your name on the podcast. So anyway, let's move on. In mid-1958, Khrushchev wanted once again to reinvigorate relations with China by suggesting that they work on a cooperative naval system which would allow the Soviets to use the 10,000 miles of Chinese coastline for their fleet in return for technology to improve their submarines. Mao would have none of it. He berated the Soviet ambassador to China, Pavel Yudin, he told Yudin, go home. You can't explain things clearly. Go back and tell Khrushchev to come here. Let him tell me directly what he wants. The next day, the ambassador repeated the offer. And now, Mao obviously angered, said, you've still missed the point. I asked you exactly what do you want. You are not good enough. Tell Khrushchev to come here. You tell him I've invited him to come here immediately. I want to talk to him. Khrushchev immediately went to Beijing, thinking that Yudin must have misinformed Mao. What happened when he arrived was a series of pre-planned humiliations of Nikita. It started at the airport, where there was no honor guard or red carpet greeting. The meetings with Mao were cool at best. After Khrushchev explained his proposal at length and in great detail, the following conversation ensued. You've talked at length, but have still not gotten to the point, said Mao. According to Taubman, Khrushchev was shocked and embarrassed, and is to have responded in kind of a mumbling fashion that, yes, don't worry, I will continue. But when he insisted a common fleet was necessary to contend with the American Seventh Fleet, Mao, quote, banged his large hands against the sofa and stood up angrily. His face turned red and his breath turned heavy. 
He used his finger to point impolitely at Khrushchev's nose. I asked you what a common fleet is. You still didn't answer me. Nikita, by now himself livid, my mouth treating him like a child, responded by saying, I don't understand why you're acting like this. We came here just to discuss things together. To which Mao responded, What does it mean to discuss things together? Do we still have our sovereignty, or don't we? What Khrushchev failed to understand was that the Chinese were very sensitive to foreign powers in their country, as this had been going on for hundreds of years. Nikita offering the use of Murmansk naval base was an insult to the Chinese, as Mao revealed when he said, We don't want to use your Murmansk, and we don't want you to come to our country either. The British, Japanese, and other foreigners who stayed in our country for a long time have already been driven away by us. Comrade Khrushchev, I'll repeat it again. We do not want anyone to use our land to achieve their own purposes anymore. Had the Soviet leader been more educated in foreign affairs, he wouldn't have seen this response. He would have seen this response from miles away, but he didn't. The next day, the humiliation continued, with Mao inviting Khrushchev to swim with him. Mao was an excellent swimmer, while Nikita Sergeyevich was not. According to Dr. Lai, Mao's physician, the chairman was deliberately playing the role of emperor, treating Khrushchev like a barbarian come to pay tribute. It was the way Mao told me on the way back to Biadhai of sticking a needle up his ass. As Khrushchev remembered it, he's a prize-winning swimmer and I'm a miner. Between us, I basically flop around when I swim. I'm not very good at it. But he swims around, showing off, all the while expounding his political views. The interpreter is translating, and I can't answer as I should. It was Mao's way of putting himself in an advantageous position. Well, I got sick of it. All the while I was swimming, I was thinking, the hell with you. So I crawled out, sat on the edge, and dangled my legs in the pool. Now I was on top and he was swimming below. But all the time he keeps talking to me about their communes. He returned to Moscow to be greeted on August 23rd by the Chinese bombing the offshore islands of Jinmen and Mazu without giving the Soviets warning. The United States responded by sending in fleets of ships and more than 200 planes with potential nuclear bomb capacity. The world was on the brink of nuclear war, which was exactly what Mao wanted. With the U.S. threatening war on September 4th, Soviet Foreign Minister Andrei Gromyko headed to Beijing. After arriving, Gromyko was informed that Mao wanted war, and that after China was invaded by the U.S., Moscow should hit America with everything you've got. Gromyko politely turned down the plan. The reason for Mao's saber-rattling, as Dr. Lai put it, quote, to demonstrate to both Khrushchev and Eisenhower that he could not be controlled, and to undermine Khrushchev in his quest for peace. As Mao put it, the islands are two batons that keep Eisenhower and Khrushchev dancing, scurrying this way and that. Don't you see how wonderful they are?
In the midst of the problems with China was another problem in the West, with the two Germanys and the divided city of Berlin. East Germany's sovereignty was not recognized by many of the NATO powers, as they wanted to reunite the two countries instead as a neutral country with free elections. Neither proposal was new, neither worked for the opposing side. Then on November 10, 1958, Khrushchev gave a speech that shook the world. Quote, the time has obviously arrived for the signatories of the Potsdam Agreement to create a normal situation in the capital of the German Democratic Republic. The Soviet Union, for its part, would hand over to the sovereign German Democratic Republic the functions in Berlin that are still exercised by Soviet agencies. Let the United States, France, and Britain themselves reach agreement with the GDR if they are interested in any questions concerning Berlin. As for the Soviet Union, we shall sacredly honor our obligations as an ally of the German Democratic Republic. As Taubman so eloquently puts it in his biography of Khrushchev, quote, translation into plain language. If the West didn't recognize East Germany, Moscow would give Walter Ulbricht control over access to Berlin, thus abrogating Western rights established in the post-war Potsdam Accords. If the Western powers tried forcibly to prevent East Germany from carrying out its new duties, Moscow would fight to defend its ally. On November 27th, Khrushchev upped the ante by demanding that West Berlin be turned into a demilitarized free zone within six months where the Soviet Union would turn over control to access of the city to East Germany. Eisenhower told his son that if he were to accede to the Soviet demands, then no one in the world could have any confidence in any pledge we make. He further went on to say, we're not going to be betting white chips, building up gradually. Khrushchev should know that when we decide to act, our whole stack will be in the pot. Later, he was to say that the need to defend Berlin was an instance in which our political posture requires us to assume military positions that are wholly illogical. The approach Khrushchev took to try to resolve the Berlin issue was in and of itself a no-win situation. He had to have known that the West could not accept his deadline and ultimatum, and they had to have known that he could not accept their demands. To top it off, Khrushchev did not consult with anyone in the Presidium or any of his aides. Mikoyan believed that his behavior was, quote, the grossest violation of party discipline. Foreign Minister Grumiko, he thought, was afraid of Khrushchev to a degree that was indecent. All the while, with one crisis after another cropping up, Khrushchev was trying to get a summit put together to discuss ideas. He was also trying to get an invitation to come to America to talk to the people and see if he could find common ground with the United States and deflate some of the tensions. In actuality, Khrushchev had no idea where things were going to lead to. He wanted to push the situation and act accordingly. To the outside world, it seemed like an erratic way to conduct foreign affairs. But to Nikita, it seemed the natural way, 
something he learned from Stalin, who despite the denunciations was still his mentor. Minnesota Senator Hubert Humphrey went to Moscow to see what he could do, but little came of that meeting aside from the two men actually liking each other. Humphrey came back to the U.S. and recommended they do a psychological workup on the Soviet leader and not a diplomatic one. By late 1958, as Troyanovsky recalls, the relationship between Moscow and the West was getting worse and that West Germany was, quote, being drawn ever deeper into the Western alliance. The arms race was gathering steam and spreading into outer space. Disarmament negotiations were getting nowhere, with defense spending weighing more on the economy. East Germany was isolated and under pressure as before. The Soviet Union was being surrounded by American military bases. New military blocs were being set up in Asia and the Middle East, and voices saying ever more distinctly that if the Soviet Union had to choose between the West and China, preference should be given to the latter. Now, what was strange about Khrushchev's policy that it was actually working? The Americans had played out, played out scenarios regarding the Soviet Union starting a thermonuclear war with the U.S., over Berlin and came to the conclusion that it would cause horrible casualties in the United States, somewhere around 65% of the population needing medical care, whereas in Russia, the destruction would be three times as great. Knowing what we do now about their capabilities, the Soviets' ability to deliver the weapons was vastly overrated and likely would not have caused one-third of the damage originally estimated. No one certainly not Eisenhower, was willing to call Khrushchev's bluff. Mikoyan then headed to Washington, as well as making stops in Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles to try to ease tensions, but to no avail. Harold Macmillan of Great Britain went to Moscow to try as well, also without any success. The theme that seemed to go through Khrushchev's mind was a Lenin injunction from 1917 which originally came from Napoleon, which said, quote, engage in battle and see what happens. His blustering about Berlin was just that. He was engaging the Americans to see what would happen. Now, a real big problem the East German government was facing was a vast migration of its citizens, especially talented ones, to the West. Millions had crossed the border, and there was no sign of that letting up. This is one of the main reasons why the East German government, led by Ulbricht, wanted something done, and something done right away. Khrushchev began to harden his stance with more blusterous speeches. One time he said, One bomb could take care of Bonn and the Ruhr, and that is all of Germany. Paris is all of France. London, all of England. You have surrounded us with bases, but our rockets can destroy them. If you start a war, we may die, but the rockets will fly automatically. He also had a great disdain for West German Chancellor Adenauer, which showed when he said in a speech, You might tell anyone you want that we will never accept Adenauer as a representative of Germany. He is a zero. If Adenauer pulls down his pants and you look at him from behind, you can see Germany is divided. 
If you look at him from the front, you can see Germany will not stand. Khrushchev went on to say, We are determined to liquidate your rights in West Berlin. What good does it do to have 11,000 troops in Berlin? If it came to war, we would swallow them in one gulp. Your generals talk of tanks and guns defending your Berlin position. They would burn. All this rhetoric was behind one thing. Khrushchev's yearning to be invited to come to America. Vice President Nixon came to Moscow in July of 1959, which was the first high-level meeting between the two countries' representatives since the failed Geneva Conference of 1955. On July 24, 1959, U.S. Vice President Richard Nixon and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev had their famous kitchen debate at the opening of the American National Exhibition at Sokolniki Park in Moscow. The meeting got a lot of press around the world, but in reality, little came of it aside from propaganda, which was used by both sides. Khrushchev remembered the debate fondly in his memoirs, especially when bantering back and forth with Nixon about a lemon juicer. Quote, The conversation began like this. I picked up an automatic device for squeezing lemon juice for tea and said, what a silly thing for your people to exhibit in the Soviet Union, Mr. Nixon. All you need for tea is a couple of drops of lemon juice. I think it would take a housewife longer to use this gadget than it would for her to do what our housewives do. Slice a piece of lemon, drop it into a glass of tea, and squeeze a few drops out with a spoon. That's the way we always did it when I was a child. And I don't think this appliance of yours is an improvement in any way. It's not really a time saver or a labor saver at all. In fact, you can squeeze a lemon faster by hand. This kind of nonsense is an insult to our intelligence. In Khrushchev's mind, in a socialist state, you didn't need all that fancy equipment. You needed the staples, and everyone would be fine. Only problem is... They didn't have that. They really needed to keep the people happy with more than what they were giving them. In a future Overdrive podcast, I will read Nikita's concerns over their economy and the availability of basic foodstuffs that were severely lacking in the Soviet Union of his time, being especially critical of the government that came after him. For years, the Americans insisted that no visit would occur until something substantive came of talks within the standard diplomatic channels. After the Nixon debate, they changed their position, but they had to do so very carefully, as they had three allies whose fears needed to be allayed. The West German Chancellor Adenauer was scared that the Americans would betray his country and make a deal that would be detrimental to his dream of a reunited Germany. Charles de Gaulle was most concerned that the French would be left out of any final treaty, as he felt that the French were really more important and powerful than they really were. Prime Minister Macmillan of Great Britain was disturbed that somehow Eisenhower had stolen the show, or as he put it, the president, quote, has caused me great annoyance, alarm, and even anger. It is not, as some of my colleagues seem to feel, the result of American bad faith, but rather of their stupidity, 
naivete, and incompetence. Everyone will assume that the two great powers, Russia and the United States, are going to fix up a deal over our heads and behind our backs. The French and the British were concerned about their reduced role in global affairs as they were losing their colonies worldwide as well as their prestige. I can only imagine how hard it was for the leaders of those two countries to watch the U.S. and the USSR make decisions without them. But this was the reality of the world after World War II. Eisenhower went ahead with his invitation to Khrushchev to come to America without any expectations of resolution of the Berlin question. Nikita was ecstatic about the trip and very nervous. According to his son, Sergei, he, quote, was excited and he kept ramming this into his listeners. Who would have guessed 20 years ago that the most powerful capitalist country in the world would invite a communist to visit? This is incredible. Today they have to take us into account. It's our strength that led to this. They have to recognize our existence and our power. Who would have thought that the capitalists would invite me, a worker? Look what we've achieved in these years. Stalin was averse to traveling to other countries, regardless of the purpose, as seen by his reluctance to meet with Roosevelt and Churchill too far away from Moscow. Khrushchev knew this and wanted to show that he was different from his predecessor. This was part of Nikita's plan known as the Khrushchev Thaw. Also, in a break from the Stalin era, the first secretary decided to take his wife Nina and the rest of his children and some of his grandchildren to the U.S. Everything was now in planning stages to make a grand entrance in Washington, D.C. The plane to be used, a Tupolev 114, was a lightly tested plane and had some potential problems, but Khrushchev decided to use it as it was the tallest plane in the world and he wanted to impress the Americans. Taking off from Moscow on September 15, 1959, Khrushchev had a lot of doubts on his mind as to how they would fare in the U.S. As he put it, Stalin kept trying to convince us that we were no good, that we wouldn't be able to stand up to the imperialists, that the first time we came into personal contact with them, we wouldn't be able to defend our interests, and they would simply smash us. Stalin words sounded in my head. They didn't depress me, though. On the contrary, they helped me mobilize my forces to prepare myself morally and psychologically for the meeting. In the midst of these thoughts, I was informed that we were approaching the United States. We had begun to circle and were about to land. In a few minutes, we'd be face to face with America. Now I'd be able to see it with my own eyes, to touch it with my own fingers. All this put me on my guard, and my nerves were strained with excitement. His dream of coming to America to show off his leadership was about to take place. The plane touched down on Andrews Air Force Base on a hot, cloudless day. President Eisenhower and a number of other officials were there waiting with an impressive ceremony. Khrushchev was, quote, terribly impressed. 
everything was shining and glittering. We didn't do such things in our country. We always did things in a proletarian way, which sometimes, I'm afraid, meant they were done a bit carelessly. It was a solemn moment, and it made me immensely proud. It even shook me up a bit, not because they were welcoming me in this way, but because that's the way they were meeting a representative of a great socialist country. While it seemed to Khrushchev that he was welcome in the United States at first, many people were furious with his arrival. As my mother and father recounted years later, they were preparing to protest his being in their newly adopted country, and they would line the streets of New York along with other Russian expatriates with banners condemning the Soviet leader. It was a time in the U.S. when communists were our staunchest enemies and a threat to our way of living. Tensions were high and expectations low, but it was an event that would help to transform the world. Join me next time as I cover Khrushchev's journey through the United States, the continuing Berlin crisis, and the beginning, I hope, of the Cuban Missile Crisis, a crisis that would eventually lead to the end of Nikita Sergeyevich's control of the Soviet Union. Well, this was a moment that I was wondering whether I'd ever have to do. As you know, many of the other podcasters out there do little plugs for commercial things like audible.com or selling CDs on their website of their podcasts. And that's great. I mean, the expense now of this, you know, with all the books I have to buy and time, you know, and the space on the Internet has started to grow as we get into, you know, more episodes here. In order to continue to do this, I'd like to just plug something that I do. Some of you may know uh, I do a lot of work in medical research, and I also have a little nutraceutical company called Knowledge Through Solutions. And we just sell a couple products. Uh, one I've made an electrolyte concentrate, which we've used, uh, you know, with everything from professional uh, football players, basketball players, NHL, Olympians, uh, to just the common, uh, you know, athlete. And we've also used it with a number of different applications. So that's one of our products. We have three of those different types. And we also have an amino amino acid complex for those people looking to boost up energy and to boost up protein intake. It has a very unique formula that's being used by uh, thousands of people right now around the world. And if you're interested in that, you can go to uh, www.kt-solutions.com and read a little bit about that. So that's it for the commercial plug. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please help me out by rating this podcast in iTunes, which some of you have started to do, which I appreciate. And that way I can move up the history podcast list. Also, don't forget to join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast Group. And I'm looking for questions, suggestions, and ideas for my 100th podcast coming up in a few weeks. So please leave me a suggestion, ask a question, or leave a comment. But as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.